Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast. You know what? You probably should insert some really hip, really cool music here because we don't have any really hip, really cool music on this podcast. But what we do have is news you're not going to easily find anywhere else. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine infantryman and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas and who was a big-time history buff even before that, I care a lot about our military. Where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be on the horizon, because these things matter. So if you're a military member, a spouse of a military member, or a parent or grandparent of a military member, this is probably a great show for you to subscribe to. I'll keep you updated on foreign policy issues, but I won't do it like you'll find everywhere else. First of all, the media almost never covers the military or looming hotspots. And if they do, they overhype everything. And they scare you and use lots of B-real video with explosions and flashing graphics. Their biggest desire is eyeballs and ad dollars. I promise you, and you can check the past year of archived editions, I do not overhype, exaggerate, or do any of that. If anything, I almost downplay It's a steady and calm voice that you'll find here. On the flip side, foreign policy journals that do cover what we do also fall way short, in my opinion. Their articles are far too long. They're far too dense, and they're crammed with big words, technical mumbo-jumbo, and silly acronyms that only insiders even know. I couldn't find a show that met my needs and that met the needs of a large community of Americans, so I decided to create one. Once a week, I'll discuss military matters while also adding in a little motivation, wisdom, and history. Besides covering this news and also trying to build you up and encourage you with plenty of motivation at the end of each episode, I also work as hard as I can to unite this country. Without question, I feel like our wide division and animosity toward those with whom we disagree is the greatest threat our country faces. So once a week, I do my best to bridge this great divide while also reminding each of us that most of us are being played by divisive politicians and broadcast hosts who are ripping apart this great country just so they can reach a higher office or gain more followers and add dollars. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. While we face great challenges as a country, America has stood together for more than 240 years, and it's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today, beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. And with that out of the way, let's get started. Oh, and if you want to, insert some more really hip, really cool music in your head, because apparently that's the only way you can have a successful podcast these days. This is the December 15th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. In this edition, we're going to discuss four major topics And then, as always, we'll end with our motivation and wisdom section. But we're going to have a section about some really big news out of Ukraine, which involves the U.S. deciding that we just might be sending them Patriot missile systems to help defend against these drone attacks, and we might be doing that fairly soon. I wanted to get ahead of that story, since it does look like it's quite the possibility. So I've got a segment on that. I want to make a point about Putin and his mentality Uh, This comes from something that Ukraine's President Zelensky said that really had me thinking and what that could mean for the conflict happening in Ukraine. I then wanted to move away from that a bit. I wanted to discuss something regarding Afghanistan since our withdrawal from the area and what that might mean for Pakistan, who, at least on paper, is a U.S. ally. And I get into that just a bit. And then finally, we'll do a segment about the uh, growing partnership that Russia has with Iran and what that might do for the Middle East, what that might do for our alliance with Saudi Arabia, I should say, our shaky alliance with Saudi Arabia, 
And then after all that, we'll definitely do our uh, motivation and wisdom section at the end. So I think this will be a great episode for you guys. And let's just get started. In some pretty big news, the Pentagon is working to basically plan to send a Patriot missile system to Ukraine, which of course is massive news. This has broken out across uh, numerous media outlets in the past couple of days, and the current situation on it is as such. The plan hasn't been approved by the President or the Secretary of Defense, but lots of intelligence folks and um, folks who are commenting off the record to the media are saying that both support it. Um, I think given what I've seen from the past six or nine months, I'm certain that the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, supports it. Um, So he's supposed to be signing off on the plan, which I'll get into in just a second on what they're working on. And I do think that President Biden will probably agree to it. Some of the -the off-the-record comments I've seen in some of the articles say he wants to be sure that they can be maintained and that they will be secure. And as long as the Defense Department can come up with a plan that allows for that, then that would be something he would sign off on. So that's what the Pentagon folks are working on right now. And obviously this would fulfill one of Ukraine's probably the biggest request it's been asking for, at least in the couple, last couple of months for sure, and that is this Patriot missile system. Now, for those who don't remember, we used these back. They made huge news back in 1991 during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. That was when they first really started to coming to light. They would shoot down, if you remember, those Iraqi Scud missiles, which were being launched into primarily Saudi Arabia and if you recall later, they were actually launched into Israel as well. And there was a system that no one really knew about, which was called the Patriot Missile System, and they would launch these things up in the sky, and it was especially amazing in the 90s that a missile could shriek up into the sky and intercept an incoming ballistic missile that was flying at hundreds of miles per hour that the missile could figure out where it would be in, say, five seconds, head to that direction, figure out all those calculations, and create an intercept path, and actually hit it. And so the Patriot systems back in the 90s were pretty good, even back then, but we would launch multiple missiles, and they would hit these Scud missiles, and that's when it really become almost infamous. So Ukraine has been requesting these since then, The Patriot systems are way better now than they were then. If you recall, that's 30 years ago. So Ukraine's been wanting these, and so the United States is starting to work on their plans on how to get them there. We've already sent two of the uh, uh, National Advanced Surface Air Missile Systems. Those are, are pretty good, too, but they're not nearly as good as the Patriot systems. And before that, we had sent... Um, we had we basically helped broker a deal with Slovakia, which is obviously a NATO ally, and we had sent um, through that deal an S-300 air defense system, which is basically Russia's premier air defense system, which actually is pretty good. And so, um, back then we had sent the S-300 through that deal to Ukraine in exchange for NATO Patriot units to replace it. So that's how we originally got S-300s there. Those have the, Those are those huge missiles that uh, they have, you know, an ability to fly at an incredible altitude. In fact, they often fly up and come down and hit things from the top. But big news that we're possibly sending the Patriot systems. Of course, this is because these waves of Russian cruise missiles and these Iranian drones have just been hammering the electrical grid in Ukraine. And I think part of what pushed it across the line because this is something that the Biden administration has resisted, is that recently there was a new deal announced where Russia's going to get even more of the Iranian drones and even Iranian ballistic missiles, which um, will help supplement and improve Russia's dwindling stocks. And so I think when when the U.S. and NATO and the West saw that 
Russia's not going to let up on these drones, and they're still getting through because they're fired in such waves. Uh, I think they finally decided that that was enough. So, a few quick things about the Patriot system. It has unbelievably sophisticated radar. It detects incoming threats from long-range missiles. It plans out how to hit them. Uh, the launchers are actually, they literally sit on a truck uh, bed and super mobile. There's usually about 90 troops assigned to each one of them. There's usually, each Patriot batter, battery has eight launchers. Each launcher holds between four and 16 missiles that are all ready to fire, depending on what type of munition they're loaded with. And so, once they're set up, it only takes about three to operate, but the reality is is that there's you got to have like a little headquarters unit, a maintenance company, communication folks, because these things are spread out a bit. Um, like I said, unbelievable weapon system. They go as high as 79,000 feet. 79,000 feet. You know, most jets are flying at like 30,000 feet. So these things go very high. Uh, they have a range that's from like a dozen to a hundred miles. So they're going to be effective against ballistic cruise missiles as well as aircraft. And their articles I've read, it's not clear what type of munitions that the Pentagon might see, might send. But either way, this is pretty big, big news. Um one other thing is I'm not sure how fast this can actually happen even once the president signs off on it because some sources in these articles say that it would take up to six months to even train Ukrainians on how to use these. So, you know, six months is a long time given that winter is here and they're already having to deal with that. But if you're Vladimir Putin and you see this kind of news, then... You have to realize that this this war isn't going to get better anytime soon, and that this is just another big step forward for the West in its commitment to defend Ukraine. And I don't think Vladimir Putin had any intentions of ever trying to establish air superiority again over Ukraine. Of course, the Ukrainian Air Force is flying now. They have much better um, air defense systems. In fact, the only time the air defense systems really don't hold up or when they have these wave attacks of 80 to 100 missiles and that would overwhelm many countries air defense systems so uh it's not like vladimir putin's flying many bombers or, or fighter jets over ukrainian airspace now but once these patriots get there and get put in place it is absolutely not going to happen at that point so i think it's really going to strengthen ukraine's air defense and also it might be a bit of a sign that Patriots were pretty high on their wish list. They've also wanted fighters. We've seen, and I've talked about in previous episodes, their desire to begin training Ukrainian fighters who already have not only uh, fighter experience as far as flying, not only combat experience because many of them had been shot down and uh, parachuted, but they want, because we can't really replace the Soviet-era fighters very well, they want to be trained on American F-16s and then maybe the planes come from another country like Italy or some other NATO ally. But if they could get trained on them and we could get them the parts, and they know it's a long-term thing, but it would allow them to have a level of fighter superiority over the Russians that would um, it would be very impressive. So that's something that uh, especially Congressman Adam Kinzinger has been pushing for probably six months or more. There's even been some Ukrainian pilots in America uh, that have been lobbying for it. That seems to be a pretty bipartisan thing, actually. So, you know, my personal hope is that after the Patriot announcement becomes a bit more official and assuming it happens, which I'm now convinced, based on the things that I've read, I think will happen. I think uh, maybe this will lead to one of the next things, which is maybe F-16s. That might be the dream thing, so maybe the next step is some type of new tank. They've been wanting tanks from the West. Uh, the M1, which the U.S. mostly uses, is not probably the best suitable one for it. It uses a different type of fuel, and it's a huge tank. And on a lot of Ukrainian roads, it may not be the best suited, but I think there are some other NATO ones that might be options. Um, but Maybe this leads to the next step, which is some type of main battle tanks, which would help them with their offensive capacity. And then maybe it, it's followed by, who knows, 
F-16s. So definitely wanted to share that news, and I think uh, I'll keep you posted as we start to learn more, but seems to me like this is something that's going to happen, and that certainly makes my day, and I'm glad it isn't just, from what I've read anyway, it looks like the National Security Council has signed off on it in the U.S. as well, so it's not like this is just some over-eager generals leaking stuff to add pressure to Biden. It seems like Biden has said he will sign off on it, according to people who are speaking off the record, but it looks like this is going to happen. So then it's just a matter of how fast can we get them there and um, how fast can they get trained. So Ukraine has shown an amazing ability. Not only do, as a people do they have an incredible spirit, but you know, six months is a long time. And I'm sure these are super sophisticated systems. But surely, and I guess I kind of almost count on it, I just feel like the Ukrainians can take that six-month time and just chop it down. And I think for all the veterans out there who are listening, you guys know this. Like, We've all been to these military training schools that were two weeks or two months, and you're like, man, I, like that two-week course could have been three days, or this could have been that. So I'm hoping that those folks who were quoted as saying it takes six months to learn this, I'm hoping the Ukrainians look at it and like, uh, yeah, no, we just need to know this, this, where's the button to fire? You know, I'm oversimplifying, but they have shown just an incredible agility on how they get weapons to the front, how they learn to use them, how they adapt weapons. They have, it's unbelievable some of the adaptations that they've done that haven't been done elsewhere. And I think it's partly because when you're in the middle of a war, there's far more urgency, but there's also like fewer bureaucratic type restraints. And so even the munition, even the drones dropping munitions, you know, in the U.S. under peacetime conditions, you'd have to put in a study. Is it feasible? And then you got to do this and then you got to, you know, get it signed off on. You got to have a safe testing space and this and that. If you're in the middle of a war zone in Ukraine, it's like, dude, like the Russians are like 10 miles over there. Let's just take this cheap drone tie a uh, anti-tank round or a mortar round or a grenade to it and let's just go see and drop it. Let's see what happens. And so they have been just super fast in getting some of these things to the battlefield. So definitely um, let's hope this goes through and let's hope it's transferred quickly and that they're trained up on it very quickly. And let's also hope, I mean, obviously we all want peace over there. Let's hope that this that Putin sees this and that some form of sanity will start to maybe, you know, sink in and he will begin to realize that his dangerous escapade into Ukraine was a tragic mistake. I think he probably already sees that, but now it's a matter of how does he extricate him from this himself from this position. And that's going to be harder to do with Russian pride and also with he's politically in a fairly weak position. So how do you somehow extricate yourself without being obvious that you've lost eventually the Crimean Peninsula? And then how do you keep the Ukrainians don't plan on stopping? How do you how do you keep the Ukrainians from not taking the Crimean Peninsula when their military is at least the equivalent of if not superior to yours? And I base that on the fact that the Ukrainians have launched two recent offensives, one in the eastern northern part near Kharkiv, one in the southern part near, obviously, the Kherson area. So that's the situation, which all my, all my listeners pretty much know that. So let's just move to the next topic. While we are on the subject of Russia, there is one other thing I wanted to to share, and this is, involves President Putin. And this is one of those things I kind of kick myself because I can't find where I saw this, but I saw it a day or two ago, read a bit about it, and it was an interview with the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, saying that he did not think Vladimir Putin would, who's obviously the president of Russia, would use nuclear weapons because he believes Putin is a coward. And as soon as I read that, it was one of those, like, just moments where you're like, why did I never think of that? Because it's so obvious that it's like, it just never hit me. But I actually think he's right. 
because we're talking about a guy who we've all seen the table, you know, the famous photos of the table where he's 30 feet away from folks back when COVID was worse. Uh, and it hits me that he's obviously an older gentleman, well into his uh, 70s, and I'm just almost mad that I didn't think of this. But I, like I said, I wanted to share the source in the source notes, the link to that article or that interview, but I have tried looking on Google in about every way I can, and I cannot seem to find it for the life of me. But I know I read it, I know I saw part of the interview, and so... Uh, and it was shared, I believe it was on Twitter or something. And sometimes folks there will share something that it, it might have been said a couple of weeks ago and got buried in the news. But I did want to share that because I do think it's important that we um, think about his mentality a lot and often because he is a still, unfortunately, a, a powerful individual with a lot of fo- forces under his control. But the coward thing. I wonder if that hits you guys the way it does me, because it, it just hit me as like this huge epiphany. And it also makes me realize that, you know, a person who wants to stay alive when you're in charge of a country that doesn't have, doesn't have peaceful p- transfers of power, you probably want to think about that. And so maybe you don't keep your foot down on the gas and be super stubborn if, you know, counteroffensives from Ukraine start to take back more land and all. So I know a lot of people, and I've even read some analysts who've said that, you know, their worst fear is that he cannot lose because there's been too many lives expended. He's lost too much popularity, and so there's no way he will give up ground in especially the Crimean uh, Crimean Peninsula. But just adding that element of I think the guy wants to stay alive. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. We all want to stay alive. No one wants to leave any sooner than, you know, you have to. So, I don't know. Something I wanted to throw out there. And um, and I did want to throw it out there because I nearly shared this last week. I'll go ahead and say it. And I'm not going to name the analyst because I think they kind of regret saying it already. Particularly since news has come out that China is pressuring... Um, Russia to make sure they don't use some type of tactical nuke. And since this person said this, it's also come out that I think he has started, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, that he has, uh, Putin has realized that there would be limited tactical improvements made by dropping even a tactical nuke. So I don't want to name the person, but they their worst fear, they said the thing that keeps them up at night, is that if Ukrainian counteroffensives were going really well, that almost out of spite, because Russia and Putin has claimed these four provinces as Russian territory, that in like a final self-defense type mode, he would drop actually a tactical nuke, not on the battlefield, but on the capital city. And so this analyst was saying that that's what kept... Uh, them up at night and like I said I'm not really a a name caller type person I don't really I know that doesn't help ratings because if I could start all kinds of controversy I'm sure that it would make me like all these other media folks that build up controversy and get people fired up and that's how you get your ratings up and that's how you grow a show but I feel like the person made what at the time was a um, a bit more of a possible realistic um, analysis of the situation that has changed since then. So I really don't feel like, um, you know, name dropping them. So not going to, but, uh, anyway, I was glad to see the part about Putin and the potential cowardice just because that helps put this thing that I didn't even put in the show a week or two ago. And I'll, I'll, I'll say one other quick disclosure. The reason I didn't put that in the show I try, as you all know, to keep things steady, and I hate, I cannot stand people that overhype news. And so the last thing I wanted to put in the show was that an analyst that I do follow and respect, that their greatest fear was that Putin might drop a nuke on, you know, this capital city of Kiev. So that's why I didn't share it, and now I'm not going to name that person. But I just want to put all this in context, and I always try to be as absolutely brutally honest on both my own thoughts on why I do include something or don't. So, there you go. That's the full story on that. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, 
please sign up for email notifications. It's free unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. But you can sign up for free at my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you never miss any future episodes. Again, that's free. I will also say that people are, are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books in some series that they love sooner than what I'm currently doing. Believe me, the best way to support me or this show is by signing up for a paid subscription at my Substack page. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or you can sign up to support at Patreon. Again, that's Patreon. Or you can also find me on Venmo at Author Stan R. Mitchell. Again, that's Author Stan R. Mitchell. And I have links to both of those in the source notes or on my Substack page, which again is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Either of those options, if you're wanting to pay, are $5 per month. And you can cancel those at any time. The paid subscriptions provide a recurring monthly revenue, and that $5 a month is the fastest way that I'll be able to return to becoming a full-time author again, which means I'll have more time to write fiction, It'll have, I'll have more time to cover the news even more in-depth, and I'll be able to work even harder to try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things that I feel drawn to do, like strongly drawn to do, so... Of course, you can also tell people about the podcast, and there's even the option to give a gift subscription to a friend. You guys can also clearly tell people about my books, which many of you are already doing, and I appreciate each and every one of you doing that. But I do want to be very clear here. You don't have to do any of these things. I truly feel called to do this, and I've already had tremendous support from people who've signed up to chip in a few bucks each month. You guys know who you are. I really do appreciate you. So trust me, you can sign up. Come and go as you like. If you want to subscribe for a couple of three months, that's great. You can do that. As long as I'm making enough to cover the time I put into doing this show, then I'm not going anywhere. I love highlighting the sacrifices of our military. I love trying to unify the country. I love throwing cold water on these over-the-top exaggerations by extremist politicians and broadcasters. And honestly, I love knowing that I'm helping motivate and reach out to people who just need a little extra encouragement each week, so... Thanks so much for your support, and with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So, moving in a totally different direction, I wanted to talk for just a moment about Afghanistan, and I don't want to get too deep into it, partly because i got too many feelings, partly because every veteran who ever served there has too many feelings, although I didn't serve there, so I want to make sure that's super clear, but a lot of my friends did. I did want to mention, I almost smile at this, and I'm sure most veterans do too. Don't want to get into, like I said, about anything about our withdrawal or any of that. But let's just talk history for just a second and something that's currently happening over there. And it's barely making the news because, if we're all very honest for a moment, Afghanistan is a very poor, illiterate country. And once American troops left, our desire and concern about Afghanistan uh, returned to the same level it was before September 11th, which is... We barely care. So that that's the reality. As a country, it's a country very far away. It's hard to get into. It doesn't affect us a whole lot unless a terrorist organization such as Al-Qaeda plans some kind of an attack from there using it as a sanctuary. So I say all that because the 20-plus years that we were involved in Afghanistan, the Pakistani government... As most people know, I was about to say some insiders, but honestly, it's pretty well known. The Pakistani government played a dual hand, is I guess what I would call it. And none of this is a secret. You can Google any of this. But while we would send billions of dollars in aid to Pakistan, Pakistan has its own problems. And that problem among at least one of the problems, I'm sure they have more than that, but one big problem they have is they have some fundamentalist, crazy religious folks who think Pakistan needs to be a more fundamentalist country. And in fact, as you know, most folks know, this isn't some big secret either, you can definitely look this up, there are what are called uh, federally administered tribal areas 
in the western part of Pakistan that they literally cannot even control. The religious fanatics are so strong in these areas that even though the military has gone in there several times, they basically get driven out. So during the 20 years that the United States was involved in Afghanistan trying to create a decent country that allows women to go to schools, gives women at least some rights, and while we tried to do some good things there, most of that time, while we were also as a country giving billions of dollars to Pakistan in both money and military aid, the intelligence service in Pakistan, called the ISI, was playing a dual hand. And that's what I was trying to say earlier. They were often supporting the Taliban. And they have deep ties that go back decades. Actually, all the way back to the 80s. You can start to dig into this a little easy, if you, or real easy if you want to. And it's kind of easy to go way down the rabbit hole. Uh, but... They go all the way, it goes literally all the way back to the 80s when the Soviets were fighting in Afghanistan and the Pakistani army was helping the Taliban back then. And so the ISI, which is the intelligence arm in Pakistan, has supported the Taliban. And in these tribal areas where the Taliban would often retreat from U.S. forces to basically to get to a sanctuary and safe area. They were basically allowed and and welcomed by the Pakistani army. If you go all the way back to George Bush, I'm sure I could find speeches where he complained about the Pakistan, uh, the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan was too porous. And so forces would come in from this, these federally administered areas that Pakistan can't really control partly because they're not trying hard enough because they don't want to upset the religious elders in that area. But these federally administered tribal areas, troops would come in from there. They would attack U.S. troops and Afghan government troops as the years passed. And then they would flee back to safety as we would try to hunt them down. And this happened over and over and over. And as you start to research it, you'll see that the ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Agency, not only would often provide medical aid and sanctuary, they would even arm. And there are even stories you can find from legitimate sources where they often accompanied attacks, raiding parties of Taliban from these areas into Afghanistan and were involved in combat against U.S. troops. So Pakistan has played a dual hand for quite a while, and they would always deny it, and they would... I mean, I understand the pressures that their government's under, and I said I wouldn't go too long on this, and I've already gone five minutes. So that's just setting up the background. But anyway, any rate, U.S. withdrew last year. Lots of controversy about that. I also said I wasn't going to talk about that at this moment. So we withdrew. Everyone knows who listened to me. I didn't agree with the withdrawal, but we did. We withdrew. And uh, the interesting thing that has happened since then, the only reason I'm bringing this up you're not going to really find this in many news organizations, but there was a bit on it in the Washington Post, and I honestly don't know that I've seen it anywhere else. If you start Googling it, you'll find it in places, but it's not really making the news. But since we left, you know, Pakistan has sent federal or government officials to welcome the Taliban government and to try to work with them and blah, blah, blah. The problem with the Taliban is that the Taliban is pretty extreme on its own, but they have even more extremist people in it, because that's the problem with religion when you let extremists take over. Each extremist is more extreme than the one before, and they keep going and going, and everyone claims that anyone not extremist as them is not the true follower. But at any rate, Taliban government has folks who are incredibly extreme, and from the beginning, they've not been happy with Pakistan because Pakistan has women that don't wear full coverings. Pakistan government is, you know, has some modern elements to it. And so they have had a terrorism wing that has been fighting Pakistan from the beginning. But since the U.S. has left, there has started to become some fighting between the Taliban. Basically, I'll just say the religious fundamentalists there who think, the entire world should be so should be living about 2000 years in the past they have started allowing attacks from afghanistan into 
Pakistan. So it's kind of like the complete reverse situation. And so um, there's actually been artillery fire uh, exchange. There's been lots of condemnations from both sides, from the Pakistani prime minister. Uh, Sharif has con- you know, condemned unprovoked shelling. Uh, like I said, they fired ex- uh, ex- artillery back and forth been like 15 wounded in one of those and so Pakistan and the Taliban are basically at war now Afghanistan's a very poor country and it'll be constant guerrilla attacks etc but it's I just I bring all this up because it's almost ironic and for those who served in Afghanistan who know how much Pakistan played this jewel hand you almost 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 take a little bit of a pleasure in the fact that they allowed these and tolerated and encouraged and even helped these kind of religious fanatics who attacked Americans and helped destabilize what was at least an attempted democratic government in Afghanistan. They played with fire. We have left. That government is gone. The Taliban are in charge. And now that fire has nowhere else to burn. So where is it going to burn? Oh, it's going to go back east toward Pakistan. And the literally these people that they have encouraged and supported are going to turn toward the now nearest, most modern government that they see. And they're going to start killing people. And they already have. There's already been some bombings. There's, in fact, there's a group called the Pakistani Taliban and I can't pronounce it, but they call themselves the TTP. You can look them up. They've been in, imprisoned in Afghan jails that were released. And so, essentially, the Taliban government, which believes it has this religious edict that it should bring traditional Islam to the entire world, well, they've set their sights on Pakistan. So, Pakistan, you have brought on what you're about to get. And so, I suppose I shouldn't add anything else, but... um. There are no doubt lots of people who've been very frustrated in America and advisors and soldiers and Marines who knows what Pakistan has done and allowed these sanctuaries. And it was one of the biggest headaches we had the entire war for 20 years. And now Pakistan gets to deal with this headache that they helped encourage. So there you go. You'll start to see some of this, I think, as these um, terrorist-type bombings happen. Like I said, the Taliban doesn't have some kind of crazy, powerful military. But what they do have, they have fanatics. And we saw, or we have seen, obviously lots of suicide bombers. And so they they raise these, these very fanatical young men who remember every single word of the Quran. That's all their education. You, you can watch videos on YouTube... And they'll kind of be like rocking back and forth as they recite the Quran. That that's literally all they know, all they all they read, all they study, and they it's very difficult to stop a suicide bomber. And so these young men who are easily impressionable youth, some of them volunteer to become suicide bombers, and then so instead of them coming at US troops in Afghanistan, these young men are going to be going into Pakistani cities. And they're going to be blowing themselves up against Pakistani soldiers and government officials and government buildings. And honestly, I'm not really sure how Pakistan deals with this because they've tried to go into the tribal areas before. It's not an easy thing. They will, uh, I was reading some analysis, they'll probably tighten up their security around the tribal areas. They'll try to stop the roads in. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll tighten things up. But the reality is, is they will probably be looking at a multi-decade guerrilla war against fanatics that can't be defeated, that really you really can't even hunt them down. There's just so many. And, of course, in these tribal areas, there's also folks who from the Middle East who go there to study because these are considered um, very holy religious um, mosques. So they're going to have outsiders coming in. And eventually, as they fight back harder against these religious leaders in these tribal areas... They will call for, you know, jihad from other Muslims to go there to fight. So not real sure how Pakistan deals with this in the coming days. But I did want to mention it. You can research 
this a bit more on your own. I don't think it'll make a whole lot of news in the short term, but it's going to be a festering wound for Pakistan for many, many years. But they have encouraged this and fed it, and so they're going to have to deal with it now. Another topic that I wanted to make sure that I got into this week's episode is some recent news that the Biden administration is claiming that Russia and Iran are moving toward what they called a full defense partnership. And I'm sharing that because uh, it obviously affects the situation in Ukraine with the drones that are being ordered and the ballistic missiles. We talked about that earlier in the episode. But I wanted to now move kind of toward the Middle East and the politics that are happening there. And we've talked about some of these politics in previous episodes. And the reason the White House and the National Security Council is beginning to spotlight some of these things is this kind of gets into like the whole Game of Thrones thing. Uh, If we back up just a bit, we've talked about how the visit from President Biden to Saudi Arabia did not quite go perfectly because after the fact, Saudi Arabia with OPEC did not do what I think the U.S. expected them to do as far as price per price per barrel, and also um, production increase increases that the Biden administration was wanting at that time. And there were members of Congress in the Senate that were increasingly starting to push away from Saudi Arabia as a military ally in the region. And we've talked about this in several episodes, actually. So I'm bringing up this military partnership because this is like the Game of Thrones situation where you're looking for allies, so to speak. The White House and the National Security Council are pointing out that among these deals, including like a a drone assembly line that might be made in Russia, which would be used against Ukraine, what is going to happen for the Middle East on the flip side, because most deals are win-win, clearly, is that Russia will be sending Sukhoi Su-35 fighters to Iran, which and they expect to begin receiving deliveries next year. So why does this matter? Well, because, uh, as the spokesperson for the National Security Council said, uh, the fighter planes will, quote, significantly strengthen Iran's air force relative to its regional neighbors. Who are these neighbors? Oh, just so happens to be one of them, Saudi Arabia, which is one of Iran's biggest rivals and almost enemies in the Middle East. Also a reminder that in the war that's happening in Yemen, Saudi Arabia and Iran are on opposite sides of that war. So the U.S. is pointing out this massive deal because I think it's kind of a reminder to Saudi Arabia that while many Middle Eastern countries, including Saudi Arabia, have not really spoken out about the war in Ukraine, and they have almost worked with Russia on some of the um, economic situations, it's the U.S. is wanting to point out, you know, you might want to think about what you're doing. And they're not saying these things. I'm the one saying that, of course, but uh, it is a... Um, it's something to keep your eye on because Saudi Arabia has some very challenging decisions to be making in the short term on whose side they're going to be on some of these things. But I definitely wanted to point that out because I think in the coming weeks we might see some things as far as how this plays out on the international stage. The U.S. has definitely been frustrated with a lot of of, of uh, Middle, Middle East and Arab nations that have not taken a strong stance against Russia. And of course, Russia does have troops uh, still in Syria, and they've tried to, you know, increasingly have some type of a foothold in the Middle East. So the U.S. is trying to do a good job of pointing out that it might not be in Saudi Arabia's interest to completely push the U.S. away and choose a new partner such as China or Russia that these countries may not necessarily be in their long-term interest. So definitely wanted to share that news with you. I'll keep you posted as we figure out or as as more moves are made by the Saudis. 
Okay, guys, so we will move to the motivation and wisdom part. I wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and I frankly completely disagree. And one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously. But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school and going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out. And certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or or to where they probably wanted to get in life. Because it's hard to be around people that don't believe, that suck the energy out of you, or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams, having idols that I looked up to, whether it's sports figures or people in history, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days, or just some type of leadership event, or just some type of really on-fire type event, and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home, and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you, and they're like, oh, that won't work, or you can't do that, it just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that, you know, people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams. And I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. You know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing, and that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said. So that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. As I say every week, you can find all of these items I'm about to quote from in the source notes at my Substack, and they are all from the social media site known as Twitter. So if you're on Twitter and you want to follow these folks, you can do so. Here's the first one. Don't use your energy to worry. Use your energy to believe. Don't use your energy to worry Use your energy to help others. Don't use your energy to worry. Use your energy to inspire others. Don't use your energy to worry. Use your energy to think positively. Don't use your energy to worry. Use your energy to get things done. Don't use your energy to worry. Use your energy to love your family. Thought that one was pretty good. Next one. Be obsessed with improving yourself. It's pretty good. We all should be improving ourselves, right? You can't control everything. Sometimes you just need to relax and have faith that things will work out. Let go a little and just let life happen. Another good one. Next one. A little progress every day adds up to big results. I love that one. Reminds me of a Stephen King quote that I should have looked up about writing. Of course, he's the author who's written 30-plus books. But uh, he said that um, writing a novel is its like just putting one word in front of the other, and sometimes it doesn't seem like you're doing much, but it's like the wall of China, of wall of China one stone at a time, and from what, you know, and you do that long enough, and you can see it from space, so... Again, the quote was, a little progress every day adds up to big results. I like this next one. Scar tissue is stronger than regular tissue. Realize the strength. Move on. That's a great one. We all get stuck on the past, though, don't we? Here's another good one. One day, all those late nights and early mornings will pay off. That is certainly something that I'm sure myself and a bunch of others are hoping for. I try to on many days, um, depending on if I'm on a streak or not. Sometimes it's a streak, but I try to wake up early before I have to do my day job to attack the things that I want to do as far as writing or editing or working on the newsletter. Um, as I, I've heard one Marine call it, um, 
get shit done time. GSDT, get shit done time. Because no one's going to call you. No one's going to text you. Your boss isn't going to bother you. Your wife is probably sleeping. Your kids are sleeping. So set that alarm early. Um, and that's something that um, obviously Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL that's such a big name now, who wrote the book Discipline Equals Freedom, that's what he suggested as well, is that you wake up an hour or two hours early before everyone else so that you can pursue your personal dreams while others are, you know, just getting that extra hour or so asleep. But then that you start backing up your sleep time as well instead of, he doesn't like suggest you do four hours sleep or six hours sleep only. He suggests going to bed at nine or 10 or 11 or whatever time that is. Go er, Go to bed earlier than you are now. Here's a good one. A good laugh heals a lot of hurts. A good laugh heals a lot of hurts. That is a great one. This one's a beautiful one. Beauty doesn't last forever, but a beautiful personality does. Again, beauty doesn't last forever, but a beautiful personality does. Isn't it interesting that you can sometimes meet someone in their 70s or 80s and they can have such a young, like, just youthful attitude, and they're still dressing nice and just happy and excited about things. That's, that's how I hope to be. This is a, uh, I'll give a hat tip or a shout out to, uh, on Twitter, he goes by Lance Corporal X, LCPL underscore X. He had shared this with me. I had mentioned something about my mother on Twitter and praying for her, asking for prayers, and, um, he shared a quote from Albert Einstein, and the quote is, There are two ways to live. You can live as if nothing is a miracle. You can live as if everything is a miracle. thought that was beautiful. Next one. Every great story happened when someone decided not to give up. We should forge that in our souls, shouldn't we? Every great story happened when someone decided not to give up. Next one, learn to trust the journey even when you don't understand it. We all know what that's like to be inside a, a washing machine getting thrown around and tumbled and, and trying to figure which direction is up. And then sometimes you emerge and you're like, man, it sometimes takes years to see this, but you realize maybe you were where you were supposed to be and um, maybe it all happened for a reason. It's crazy, but it sometimes feels that way. It takes a while to see that though. Next one. Life is too short to spend at war with yourself. Practice acceptance and forgiveness. Letting go of the past is your first step to happiness. It's a great one. Totally agree. Next one. You don't need more time. You need fewer priorities. Another good one. Although I would say that some of the things we say are priorities are probably not priorities. Okay, next one. When you let go, you create space for better things to enter into life. It's a good one, isn't it? Next one. It's good for your mental health not to have an opinion about everything. I would also say it's good for your relationships not to have an opinion about everything. I am learning and getting better at this, actually, that increasingly, whether it's someone on the left or right, when they come up and say, oh, can you believe such and such happened or such and such didn't happen? I, I am trying to get better and better about being, yeah, you know, it's very frustrating. And then I immediately just try to change the subject. And if they try, you know how people always try to pin you down? They want to find out if you're conservative or not, or if you're liberal. Hey, what do you think about, and their answers, they really are good at pinning you down. Man, like some people are so good at pinning you down. But I found a pretty good answer that I try to use. And I usually say, oh, don't get me started on that. You're going to get me fired up. So that if it's a conservative trying to pin me down about something, they think I agree with them, and maybe I do, and maybe I don't. If it's a liberal, same thing. They think I agree with them, and maybe I do, and maybe I don't. But it just, it's like a really easy way to deflect something and just say, man, don't get me fired up. Because they instantly believe you agree with them, and half the time you totally disagree with them, and it would fire you up, but there's no point in damaging the relationship, so... Just say, hey, don't get me fired up on that. By the way, do you hear the Vols are playing this weekend or whatever your sports team or whatever, just like immediately move to the next topic. And we would all get along a lot better, I think. Next one. You don't need to be perfect. You need to be consistent. I love that one. It goes back to the 
piling up stones to build the Great Wall of China, doesn't it? Or writing words. Everyone always asks me, like, man, how have you written 11 books? And it's literally like, I just write a little bit. Every chance I can. I, I try to every day. But it adds up. Next one. Never stop being a good person because of bad people. I love that one. Next one. Healthy relationships are created, not found. That is an amazing one. Healthy relationships are created, not found. We could all work on our relationships some, couldn't we? Maybe send someone like a handwritten note. That's still one of my favorite things to try to do for people. Next one. Everything will suddenly happen for you, and you will be so thankful you didn't give up. I love that that is another one about just never giving up and always believing. I think that's like one of the most important things in life if you're chasing some type of dream. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. .substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone, call a friend or a family member, do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide, so I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. I can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because, honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you. So I will briefly describe them real quickly. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but Folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, 
to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action. A couple of cops die before the end of book one, and if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown. Book two is called Gravel Road, and it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what um, the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Akoff, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. Uh, There's plenty of action in it as well, and it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl... Um, is hot, and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I talk about, or I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So it, really, the book is it's it's pretty deep, and so it the, it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish, and will they survive with their honor and dignity? And I think you know, and I've been told this that Soldier On just truly defines what it means to be a soldier to never give up. And then I've also got a realistic war novel about Afghanistan. It's called Hill 406. It's about a couple of Marines who couldn't be more different, and they get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation, and it's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. Um... And then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention just real quickly. And then the final book I mentioned is, actually, it's a part biography, part self-help, all-inspiration type book uh, about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents, what sets them apart, what qualities allowed them to reach their goals, where others failed, how can you cultivate those qualities in yourself. And besides that, I also share some things about him that you may not know, such as, throw out a couple, did you know that before he ran for the U.S. Senate, he was crushed by a four-term incumbent who beat him by a two-to-one margin? Most people aren't aware of that. He also coached his uh, Sasha's fourth-grade recreational basketball team called the Vipers while president. That was not super well-known. And then also, the craziest thing, as he's known for being a speaker, did you know that when he started, he actually wasn't even a good speaker? He admits that himself. So I'll talk about several things I've found out about him as I researched him some, and I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you, kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking, how he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge, like, two-to-one election defeat that I mentioned above. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. And so it's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I've put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of um, series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration. It's self-help type stuff. And so, you know, I think you can learn a lot from presidents and I could go for on for probably hours, honestly, about how it's crazy. Some of the people who end up becoming president and the things they do to get there. But again, I won't get into it too much, but that book is called number 44, the traits and characteristics that carried Barack Obama to the top the, how he managed to, with his name, with the background, the mixed background, the lack of money, and the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was, is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody, but it's an incredible book, in my humble opinion. So that's called Number 44. You can check that out as well. 
And I don't think I said this earlier, but you can find all of my books on Amazon. So just go to Amazon and just search for the name Stan R. Mitchell. And you should see a whole list of them. You'll see them all listed. And that's the best place to get them. And that's also why I have to put the R in my name. You'll see there's more than one Stan Mitchell. So way back in the day, I had to do what I never wanted to do, which is put a middle initial in my name, which to me just seems kind of... I don't know, pretentious, but yes, go to Amazon.com, search Stan R. Mitchell, and you will see a list of them. Hey guys, thanks so much. I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.